Uh, now, we're not going to be able to go chapter by chapter and verse by verse in four weeks, and there's so much there. And so what we're going to do is each week, we're going to pick a, a particular passage in one of the chapters that we think is kind of a, a significant piece of the letter that gives us a, a bigger overview of, of the whole book. But what we'd love to encourage you is if you're not already in a study or uh, following a particular devotional, to be reading along in the book of Philippians over the next four weeks. And what we encourage you to do is think about how much time do you want to set aside uh, to be reading God's word? And some of you, that might be a, a daily thing. Some might, might be a few times a week. Whatever you choose to dedicate to reading God's word, we just encourage you to set a time. Is it 15 minutes? Is it 20 minutes? Is it 30 minutes? And just start reading through Philippians. And whenever you get done to the end of your time, stop where you are. The next day you're reading, pick it up and read through the whole book. And when you finish the book, go back and start over again and read through the whole book. And, and see, the goal is uh, in, in this process is to allow the, the letter of Paul to the Philippians to become kind of a part of our lives, to let, to let ourselves kind of soak in those words. We, we can go and study verse by verse, and that's important at times, but also it's good sometimes to, to invite the Spirit of Christ to, to join us as we read God's Word and allow those words to kind of soak into our hearts so that they become a part of our own thinking and a part of our, our own understanding. And what you'll find, I believe, is that as you give yourself to that kind of reading of God's Word, that the Holy Spirit will, will bring to mind different verses and different passages, when you're on your way to work in the car, when you're at work with your colleagues, the Holy Spirit will bring a particular verse to mind and you'll begin to see how God's word applies in a variety of situations. And so as we go through the book of Philippians, I just want to encourage you to consider soaking in this letter of Paul to the church in Philippi that he wrote 2,000 years ago, but I think is still very applicable for us today. Alternatively, if you like something a little bit more structured. We've also uh, put a link on our YouVersion event app. Uh, every week on YouVersion Bible app, uh, you can, uh, you have to set up an account, but once you set up an account, uh, you can open the app and you can go to the, uh, the more page because everybody likes more, right? Uh, and, and then you hit the events uh, tab and it'll come up all the different churches in the area who are using the YouVersion app. Faith Covenant Church is right there. You can click on it. We have our sermon notes right there for you every week. And in there, there's a link to a day-by-day -day devotional reading in the book of Philippians that comes from Austin Life Church. So if you like something a little bit more structured, that's an option for you. A, a little note, if you want to use the app to, to save your own sermon notes uh, while you're here, uh, you want to save those notes today because after today, they, they go away and you can't find them again. But it's a great way for us to uh, be able to track the ways that God is leading us to be engaging with his word. And you can even invite friends to be reading along with you. Now, we chose the letter to the Philippians because it's both a letter of encouragement. And I believe we need encouragement in this season. But it's also a letter of challenge. In it, what we find is the apostle Paul expresses his deep love and his gratitude. For his friends at the church in Philippi. These are, are, are true partners with him in life and ministry. They've supported him from the beginning, and, and they weren't a really wealthy church. And even in their, their, their poverty and their lack of resources, they continued to faithfully offer support and encouragement 
and partnership for Paul. So, so, so because of their faithfulness and their ongoing partnership with him in sharing the good news about Jesus, he, he deeply cares for this group of Christians who are, are struggling to figure out how to make life work in the midst of a, a Roman culture where, where they weren't really welcome in their town. And they weren't even a very homogenous group of people. They were all very different. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But Paul wants them to remember this. That the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. Amen? The fact that Jesus is alive changes everything. You see, that the love of God revealed in Jesus not only becomes a new reality in which they live their lives and we begin to understand the life that we have in this world, but it becomes the very model by which they learn to love one another well. And I believe that's Paul's heart for the church at Philippi, and we're going to take four weeks to look at this. But Paul's challenge is learn to love one another well. And in that spirit, I want to invite you to pray with me one more time and invite God's spirit to open the words of Paul to the church in Philippi to be his word to us, not only today, but in this season ahead. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we do thank you that you are a God who, who calls us your friends, that you are, are passionately desirous to, to, to teach us about this love that you have for us, this amazing grace that covers over a multitude of sins and empowers us to be more loving towards one another. Would you speak to us again, God, about how your spirit at work within us wants to transform us from the inside out, to be a people who not only receive your love as a free gift of grace, but learn how to love one another well. And so, share that love with others and with a lost and a hurting world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, real quick, I'd just like to do a little bit of background on the letter to the Philippians. Uh, we have a map for you if we can get that up. And I have this little handy-dandy laser pointer. It's kind of fun. I won't point it in your eyes, though. Uh, but you can see here's a map of the Mediterranean, right? And we have uh, Israel down here where uh, we have Palestine and Jerusalem and Damascus. And you see the, the route of Paul's initial missionary journey where he uh, traveled around the Mediterranean. And we know that if you go to Acts 16, Acts 16 kind of tells the story of how Paul ended up going to Philippi to begin with. Because we know that, that Paul didn't really intend to go there, right? He was uh, over here in Antioch and he's looking at... Bithynia up here and thinking that he's going to go up and, and continue to do his missionary work up here, when all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, he has a vision, right? And a man from Macedonia appears to him and says, come to Macedonia and help us. And so instead, he takes a complete detour and he goes all the way over to Troas where he catches a boat goes across the sea to Neapolis, which is the port, and then he goes inland about 10 miles to Philippi right there. Now, Philippi was this uh, middle trade route. If you can see here, there's this, the Ignatian Way. This Ignatian Way that goes all the way from the coast over here, across the Middle East, over and down through uh, Derby and on over to Antioch, is a part of the Roman road system where they began to connect with the larger Roman Empire. 
And so Philippi was this uh, trade route that had people from all over the world traveling through. And even though it was a smaller town, it was highly influenced by the Roman Empire and the Roman government. And so when Paul arrives in Philippi, his typical uh, modus operandi in his initial journey was to find a synagogue, right? A Jewish synagogue of of believers who are worshiping and to go there and to begin to share the good news uh, of Jesus. Well, when he gets to Philippi, he discovers what? There is isn't even a synagogue in Philippi. He's looking around and there's nothing. And what he finds is he finds some believing women who are gathering outside the city at the river on the Sabbath day to pray, perhaps because they weren't even welcome to worship the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in this highly Roman city of Philippi. Paul's only there for a short time, but when he and his companions left Philippi after their short time there, uh, they were kind of kicked out at the request of the city leaders, right? They left behind a very small but diverse group of believers. Uh, The wealthy merchant Lydia was one of the women that he found, and and she invited all all these believers to to come and and form a house church in her home. And they were joined by more of a a blue-collar jailer whose whole family came to believe. So you have this wealthy businesswoman with this blue-collar jailer, and then you add in the mix this slave girl who Paul set free from a demon of fortune-telling, and we assume she became a part of the mix. You can begin to imagine what this early house church was like, right? These were not homogenous people who all had a shared life experience, who came together because they had a shared affinity for, you know, whatever it was that drew them together. These were people who were not from the same streams of life that God thrust together because they all shared in the grace that they received through the gift of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is alive, their lives changed forever. In many ways, the Philippian church also seems to have been Paul's favorite church. We don't really like to play favorites, right? But this was one of Paul's favorite churches. They, they supported him from the beginning. As I said, even in their lack of resources and poverty, they consistently and faithfully partnered with him in his ministry. When he was on the highs, they were there. And when he was at his lowest points, they were there. In fact, the the context for this letter to the Philippians was he was imprisoned and and, and he was uh, facing the possibility of execution and and maybe even being ashamed and a failed evangelist. They still were with him. They sent one of their own, Epaphroditus, to bring financial resources and to be personally supportive and encouraging to him while he's in prison. See, they continue through ups and downs to show themselves faithful to their partnership with with Paul in this gospel. Uh, There was one point of concern, though, as we imagine Epaphroditus comes and brings word of of how good things are going for the church, that they're, they're struggling and contending for the gospel, even in the face of persecution. We know that Nero was the emperor in Rome, and he was one of the most vicious persecutors of Christians. Even in the midst of persecution, they were staying strong, and they were staying together. Uh, but there was one point of concern that Epaphroditus brought that is difficult to miss as you read the letter to the Philippians. And that was in the midst of their life, they were not unified in Christ. 
They were struggling with conflict and infighting among themselves. And Paul is concerned because he knows that if we're not able to love one another well and we can't overcome our own differences in conflict, then, then that very conflict runs the risk of undermining our very testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul writing to his friends out of his deep love for them, wants to encourage them to keep doing the good things that they're doing, but to also remember that the the fact that Jesus is alive changes everything, and therefore they should begin to do everything they can to overcome their differences and to find a way forward together. This morning, I want to focus in on verses 9 through 11 that Jeff read for us this morning. And I think in this prayer that Paul has for his friends, we begin to see the heart of what he wants them to understand in this larger letter. And maybe we can find some things here for us as well that allow us to begin to focus on what God would have for you and for me in our own lives, in our own relationships, here in our church in this season. Paul said, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Paul is a wonderful writer, and this is a beautiful sentence, but it's filled with some really powerful things that I'd love for us to to unpack a little bit this morning. First of all, looking at Paul's prayer, we can see that Paul's primary focus, his desire for these brothers and sisters in Christ is that their lives will ultimately do what? Bring glory and praise to God. Right? That's his ultimate desire. That's his ultimate hope is that everything that they do and what their experiences is will prove to bring glory and praise to God. Isn't that what we want too? Don't we desire our lives to matter, to make a difference in God's kingdom, to show that, that our faith has value and, and that the sacrifices that we make aren't necessarily for ourselves and our own glory, but ultimately our lives fulfill the purpose for why God created us and saved us through his son is that we bring glory and praise to God. Wouldn't it be our hope for our own friendships, for our marriages, for our families, That somehow as we live life together and we learn how to love one another well, our lives will bring praise and glory to God because we're living out of this call to to learn what, what true sacrificial and unconditional love is really all about. Isn't the desire of our church and as a faith community to to make a difference in the world around us and to be part of advancing God's kingdom in the world so that God's name is glorified in the name of Jesus is lifted up. See, one of the challenges that we've been talking about here at Faith Covenant Church in this fall season is that it's easy in our hectic, fast-paced, busy culture to get distracted by so many things that we might miss the one thing that is most important. Uh, Even good things that we can pursue, even even God things might not be God's best things for our lives. And we need the ability to to begin to discern what is God's best and what does God want us to do so that that we're investing our time and our talent and our energy in the things that bring glory and praise to God. 
So we've been talking about how we can better discern these differences in our lives by, by having three key learnings. And we're not, we're not going to go into them in depth because we've spent the fall talking about them. But just as a reminder, you know, we believe that God is calling us to travel light, to let go of some of the things that might be good but aren't God's best so that we have room in our lives to begin to invest in the things that, that God wants us to invest in. And then, and then that leads us to pursue shared experiences, right? If you want to be more than just a, a tourist in life, you got to have shared experiences with local people. We need to be investing in relationships with people around us. And we've got to learn that doing soul care is an essential first step in being able to have something good to offer those that we love. That we've got to put the oxygen mask on ourselves first if we hope to be able to help those around us. And as we've continued to prayerfully explore God's leading through these lenses of, of how do we discern and interpret what God's best is for our lives, uh, we are believing that Paul's letter to the Philippians offers us an even greater understanding and insight into how we can grow in these areas of our lives. So according to Paul's prayer, what is it that leads us in our lives to be able to bring glory and praise to God? Love. Love. This is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more. Paul is clearly stating right up front that the primary measurement of our success as believers, our success as Christians, is our increasing ability to love each other well. You see, and the progressive nature of that love that it may abound more and more and more shows that it's a lifelong process of growing into the ability to love more, learning how God's love is the same love that he wants us to share with each other. We don't just intellectually understand God's love and say, yes, we believe that's true, and then not change our own lives right? We, we, we experience that love. And because we experience the grace and the sacrificial, unconditional love that God has for us, we can't help but want to share that with others. And we begin to treat one another in the same way that God has treated us. The kind of love that Paul is talking about is more than simply having warm, fuzzy feelings for one another, even though we have those too, right? It's the kind of love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross when he offered his life for the forgiveness of those who were tormenting him and crucifying him. And through that cross, he offers that same gift of grace to each one of us today that while we were still in our sins, God loved us. He didn't wait for us to, to clean up our act or to, to get it together. He came and said, I love you just where you are. And because of that love, I want you to come to me in the same way that I have come to you. And what you will find is that through that love, that power of love to transform darkness and sin into beautiful restoration and healing and light is a part of the gift that we have in our relationship with Christ that then we too can pass on to others. The Bible tells us it's this agape love of God that is sacrificial and unconditional that asks us to learn how to love one another well, sometimes in spite of how we feel about each other. But the only way we can learn to love each other in the same way Paul tells us is if we allow God's love to be the love that we offer one another. 
See, he says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What is he talking about in, in knowledge and depth of insight? See, the kind of love the Bible talks about isn't just this feeling that we have to manufacture and generate when we're in conflict and we have difficulty with one another and we don't know how to bridge the gap between people that we disagree with and that we're having arguments with or that we don't even necessarily really like. God's love isn't a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a, a sacrificial commitment to love one another because God created us in his image and he loves each one of us just as we are. And therefore, he calls us to learn to love one another in that same way. It's not just informational knowledge about love. It's relational knowledge about love. And what do I mean by relational knowledge? For Paul, the ability to love one another well comes first from knowing Jesus Christ and his love for us. And maybe the first question is, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Are you spending time with him? Are you accepting his grace and his love in your life? Because you can know all there is to know intellectually about Jesus, but if you don't spend time with him, if you haven't met him, if you're not in a relationship with him, it's all for nothing because it's only his love in you that allows you to love others in the same way that he loved you. In our own, we're sinful, broken people. We're selfish. We want to take our toys and go home. Right? But Jesus shows us a better way. And when we spend time in his love and his grace, he gives us the courage and the strength to take that love and share his love with others. See, our own ability to love others well abounds more and more and more, Paul says, through our own knowledge of God's love for us. And so the starting point is always spending time with Jesus. How does our knowledge and insight into God's love impact the way that we love our friends? How does uh, the knowledge of God's love for you men impact the way that you currently love your wife? Or does it? Are you trying to do it in your own strength? Do you have some romantic ideal from our culture that says that, that love looks this way? All, all the while, we, we think that marriage is a 50-50 contract, and if we each give 50%, then somehow we have a whole. That's not the Bible's understanding of marriage or love. Women, how does God's love for you impact the way that you sacrificially love your husband? Or does it? You see, I believe that Jesus' model of love for one another, which bears itself out in the marriage relationship, but also in all of our relationships with one another, is that Jesus gave 100% before we gave any. And then he invites us to give 100% back. You see, Christian marriage is a 100% all-in proposition no matter what. And until we're willing to go all the way with who we are and our love for our marriage partner, we can never hope to experience the kind of love that Jesus has for us. But if we understand Jesus' love, he invites us to experience a whole new level of what intimate relationship can be about. And that's true for our friendships, and it's true for our church relationships, and it's true for our parenting, and it's true for how we pursue work and life and business in the world. Can our measure of love for one another become a measure of how successful we are? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Can our measure of love for one another 
become a measure of how successful we are. Because I think that's what Paul is ultimately saying here. You know, if you think about how do we measure success in our culture, it's usually by our bank account, right? How much money we have, the size of our house, the level of, of progression we get to in our careers, how many possessions we have, all of the things that, that talk about status and, and wealth and fame. And our culture tells us we have to run after all of these things and we stratify our culture based on the haves and the have-nots, right? The one percents and the rest of us. But Jesus is saying it's totally the opposite. Your measure of success shouldn't be about anything that you can accumulate in this world, but, but, but by the quality and the effectiveness of your love for other people. Because then whether you have a lot or a little, Paul will say, you found the secret of being content because you have love. And that's really all we desperately long for and need. What good is it, Jesus said, to gain the whole world and, and lose your soul, right? And so as we've been saying here again, it begins with our knowledge of Christ and spending time with Christ and sitting with God in his word. As we read through the letter of Philippians, we're inviting everyone to, to rediscover God's perfect love for each one of us so that it begins to work in us to transform us so that we are able to love one another differently. That's what Paul says here in verse 10, is that our increasing knowledge and depth of insight is what allows us to do what? Be able to discern what is best. You see, as we grow in our knowledge and insight from spending time with Jesus, we gain new insight and a deeper knowledge of God, and we're able to understand and discern in our own lives what is truly best. And we can begin to make wise choices in how we behave and in how we speak and what we invest our time and our talents and our treasures in. Having an intimate understanding of God's love and God's plan in my life and in your life allows us to begin to discern God's best in our relationships, even here in our church community. See, our goal in, in doing this kind of ongoing self-evaluation and an evaluation as a church, Paul says, is so that we may be found pure and blameless in the day of Christ. That's a little scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> pure. How many of you today feel completely pure and blameless? <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? But it's a pretty high standard. So what is he saying here? Is he saying that somehow we're supposed to be perfect in all of this? No, he's saying just the opposite. He's saying that because we don't understand where, where love genuinely comes from and we're not spending enough time going deeper in our knowledge of Christ and with God, we're missing the whole point that, that, that our, our purity and our blamelessness only comes when we allow the, the love of Christ to be the love that we share with others. It's not even our love. We don't even get credit for it. But when we say yes to Jesus, he promises that he will come in and he will make us a blessing to others. And when God looks at you and God looks at me, he looks through the lens of Jesus and he sees Jesus in you. And he sees Jesus in me because we're committed to trusting our lives with Jesus. And because of that, in the end of time, when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, the question is not, have you done it perfectly? But, but are you staying with Jesus? Are you in relationship with Jesus? Are you doing your best to stay connected to the vine and allowing his love to be the priority of how you share and live life in this world? 
In the Bible, being pure and blameless is not about being perfect, but about being found in Christ. Because Paul says that in Christ and through Christ, we experience his righteousness as the fruit of our lives. In verse 11, he says, then we are filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from where? Through Jesus Christ. See, our righteousness never comes from ourselves. It never comes from how good we are or how, how we can check off the boxes of being a good religious person. It comes from sitting at the feet of Jesus and spending time with him in our lives and allowing his love to transform us so that we're actually having his love to share with others. This fruit, what is fruit, right? It's the, it's the outward manifestation of the inward Reality. Jesus was very clear that you know a tree by its fruit, right? And the fruit comes from the heart. Fruit in all of our lives is the outward manifestation of the inward reality. And the question we always need to ask is what fruit is your life currently producing? And how does that reflect the current inward reality of your experience in life? The outcomes of our choices and our behaviors in our words produce a fruit, whether it's for good or for evil. And as we look at the fruit, we're not worried about the outcomes in terms of what they are in themselves, but what's going on on the inside that's producing the fruit that we're experiencing. When we evaluate the fruit of our lives based on the standard of God's unconditional love, it leads us to more and more see the righteousness of Christ as the fruit of our lives. Now, we've talked about this before, this word righteousness, right? It's kind of a churchy word, uh, you know, the fruit of righteousness. And you know, we got to be righteous in our lives. And what is righteousness? And how do we understand that? And, and we've talked about here that, that uh, from a biblical understanding, righteousness is simply being in right relationship. Being in right relationship. And if you think about that through all of the kinds of relationships we have, starting with our relationship with God, right? Righteousness is being in right relationship with God, which we can now do through Jesus Christ because it's not our own goodness that puts us in right standing with God, but it's his mercy and grace that we receive as a gift. And so now that we are in right relationship with God, we have the ability to begin to be in right relationship with others, and so we begin to find healing and wholeness and reconciliation with other people. But then it's not just other people, too. Righteousness has to do with our relationship with the world around us. Not only our neighbors and the people of the world, but the very things of the world. And, and how does it impact our relationship with our money? And how does it impact our relationship with food? And how does it impact our relationship with uh, digital technology and imagery that we might partake in and the kinds of movies we watch and the kinds of things that we expose ourselves to? Think about all of the ways that we put ourselves into relationship with other people in the world around us. God's righteousness is about discovering God's best in all of those areas of our life. And again, what Paul is reminding us is if we start with Jesus and spend time with him and we receive his mercy and grace, his ability to teach us how to love ourselves and others well begins to put us back into a right relationship with others and with the world around us. When relationships are right, they produce good fruit. When relationships are broken, they produce bad fruit. 
See, we need Jesus' own right relationship with God the Father to become the increasingly normative reality that we're living into so that we can learn how to love each other in the same way that he loved us. When we do, two things happen. We experience the goodness of God in our own lives, in our marriages, in our families, in our church. And then we become a blessing to others around us. And it's when this begins to happen, when we are truly loving others well, that God's name is praised and we bring glory to God. See how that works? We want to bring glory and praise to God in our lives, but the only way we can begin to do that is to understand what is of priority value in God's economy. And I can tell you, if we're talking about the church, God's priority value is not attendance. It's not our bank account or our budget. It's not how many programs that we can fulfill. It's not about how many Sundays you attend church during a year. The question is, who are you loving well? Because if we're not loving each other well, then we're missing the whole point for why God saved us and gave us his love and his grace. And one of the things I'd love for us to begin to to look into is how do we measure love? How do we as a faith community, as a church, determine whether we're a truly loving community or if we just have this warm, fuzzy feel that we like about our church and we want us to be famous in our community, but, but maybe the new people who come don't necessarily feel like they're being loved all that well. So two questions, you know, and, and I, I would love for you to, to share your answer with me uh, offline during the week through an email. Take me out to coffee. <laughs> or lunch. <laughs> this is an honest question. How well are you feeling loved by Faith Covenant Church? How well are you feeling loved by Faith Covenant Church? Okay, second question, honest question. As a representative of Faith Covenant Church, who are you loving well? Who are you loving well? Can you put a face and a name to that question? Can you put more than one face to that name? Because men and women, as we get serious about understanding that this is the crux of our faith, this is the crux of the kingdom of God, that it's all about learning to love one another well because it's what we most deeply need and what the world out there most deeply needs to experience. It's not about what you believe. It's about how what you believe changes your life. And the starting point is to stay connected to Jesus. So over the next four weeks, if you're not already in another study or you don't have another devotional going on, be reading Philippians with us. Invite the Spirit to read with you, to bring words to mind, to show you what God would have you know and understand through His Word about how only His love can transform your heart. But if you allow his love in, if you open the doors to that kind of sacrificial, unconditional love for you, it will transform your heart to be a person who knows how to love others well. And you will see the power of God at work in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, and in our world. And that's our hope because that will bring praise and glory to him.
Let's pray. God, we do thank you that you love us so much and that you continually call us in grace and mercy to receive that love in a fresh new way, not, not in a way that, that misses the point that your goal is to, to bring healing and wholeness in our lives so that we too become people who know how to love one another well. God, as we look ahead as a church and we ask, how do we measure success as a faith community? Will you give us insight how to measure our level of loving one another? And if that's something we're really doing or if there are ways that we can begin to add back into the mix our ability to be genuine community with one another. God, our desire and our hope is to bring you glory and praise in our lives. And so we give you the courage, uh, the strength, permission to give us the courage and the strength to do your work in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.